Lumos. Hello, and welcome to this episode of the Harry Podcast, the show where we analyze and discuss each chapter of the Harry Potter series from a literary perspective. I'm David. And I'm Madeline. And today's episode is called Harry Podcast and the Heir of Slytherin. Today we will be discussing the themes of choice and memory, as well as exploring the character of Tom Riddle and the way Rowling uses horror elements to describe him. So first off, uh, we have a special guest on our episode today, uh, Connor Crockford, who uh, co-hosts the podcast The Barn, which is about the TV show The Shield. So hello, Connor, and welcome. Hey, welcome. Thanks, guys. Appreciate it. Happy to be here. So when we, whenever we have guests on the show, we like to ask them um, what their Hogwarts house is and who their favorite character is. So what are the answers to those for you? So, uh, we discussed this a little in the earlier, and I would say I'm a Ravenclaw, I think, by default in terms of my personality and <laughs> kind of some of my strengths, I guess. Um, and then my favorite character, I would say, I'm, I'm thinking about this now, I think it's a really nice split. It's between uh, Severus Snape and Sirius Black, and mm. I think I like Snape's dramatic arc, but I like Sirius as kind of a character, like somebody who is like very flawed but also you know very genuine um i i kind of relate to his character yeah uh, i totally agree i mean he, yeah. Sirius is my favorite character as well and i think snape mm-hmm. is another excellent choice they're both very complicated people indeed yeah have, that's what they i have like really about interesting them, arcs too yeah yeah they i think they appeal the most to you as you grow up especially um mm-hmm. like yeah. looking back you're like oh those are the most interesting characters okay um, yeah, because a lot of the characters in the series, because it's a children's series, are pretty like one note, or they're pretty mm-hmm. like, you know, oh, they're they're good, or oh, they're evil. Right. You know, there's not that much interesting going on. But yeah, those two you know. in particular, they're they're very gray and they're very, as we said, very flawed. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Awesome. All right, so um, let's start out with a brief synopsis of the chapter. So this starts out with Harry enters the chamber and sees Ginny. Um, lying on the floor and then he hears a voice and turns around to see uh, Tom Riddle. So the riddle that he sees claims to be an actual memory and he says that he was preserved in the diary for 50 years. Riddle explains about the, his diary and how he used it to corrupt Jenny, forcing her to open the chamber of secrets and unleash the monster on his students. Riddle then says how 50 years ago he set up Hagrid to take the fall for him. He says that once Ginny had told him about Harry, his whole focus and approach to opening the Chamber of Secrets changed, so he wanted to meet Harry and figure out how Harry defeated the adult Voldemort when he was a baby, and then to kill him. So bringing Ginny to the Chamber of Secrets was just a trap to lure Harry down there. Uh, Ritter reveals that Voldemort is the name he took for himself and that he is the heir of Salazar Slytherin. Riddle then releases the basilisk, from inside the statue of Salazar Slytherin. Then Fox the Phoenix arrives to aid Harry in the fight, and he brings the school sorting hat with him. Harry pulls from the sorting hat in his time of need the sword of Godric Gryffindor. Fox then blinds the basilisk, and Harry manages to stab the basilisk through the roof of its mouth, then killing it. But while he does that, a fang sinks into Harry's arm and begins to kill him with poison. Riddle then thinks he's done for, but Fox cries on the wound, healing it completely. So Riddle raises Harry's wand to kill him, but then Fox drops the diary into Harry's lap, and with a pausing to think, Harry stabs it with a basilisk fang, which destroys the memory of Riddle and restores Ginny to consciousness. 
They all leave the chamber together, finding Ron and a very delirious Lockhart, who seems to have had his own memory destroyed by his backfiring charm. Then the four of them grab a hold of Fox's tail, and they fly out of the chamber back up into the school. So there's a ton to cover in this chapter. Um, a lot of thematic uh, plot points sort of come to full fruition here. Um, and one of the first ones that we really see in full bloom is this idea about memory, and specifically memory personified in the form of Tom Riddle. So, you know, having read the whole series, we know that this memory personified is actually a horcrux, a fragment of Voldemort's soul, which he split off when he was 16 and preserved that 16-year-old self within the diary. Um, but it's interesting to see, like, what powers Voldemort gives this memory, this piece of soul, like, how much control um, does Voldemort have over, like, what his horcruxes are supposed to do. You know, we see the locket later on, like, that tries to corrupt Harry and Ron by turning them against each other. Um, and this diary clearly was also intended um, as, like, a weapon against the school. So, um, you know, it's, it's interesting to think about what he had planned for this diary and... Um, what connection, if any, does Voldemort in his current form have to the memory Riddle? You know, like, does he feel it when Riddle dies? Um, does he have any conception or, like, emotional connection to um, these fragments of soul that he split off from himself? Yeah, it does seem like memory is this big theme in the book. You know, so we do see it, as you say, with, with Lockhart, with Ginny, the diary, and Riddle and Voldemort. And... I think what's interesting is that, you know, we've been discussing, you guys have been discussing how the Chamber of Secrets, a lot of it is about choice. And it's notable that the past and memory, they have no choice involved with them. You have no ability to change them. Mm. And they have power, but the power is in, it's strange because it's not based on agency. It's based on how much they can hurt you, how much you can use them for betterment. Yeah, I think that's that is really interesting because, especially thinking about Voldemort kind of creating these horcruxes and these they're basically preserved memories and mm -hmm. parts of himself is the idea that like he has picked these different points in time in his life and done them at different times and so it's almost like he doesn't like you said there's no there's no changing what happened so he kind of can't control like, who he is now based on these in the past. Like, maybe if... Okay, so maybe if you made horcruxes and then later on you tried to use them, they wouldn't actually, like, be the purpose that you wanted to have now. Mm -hmm. um, and so that's that's why I was also wondering, like, if, if Baltimore has control in his current state and um, what he can do, because, like Riddle explains, his purpose changed, and now he he like actually had some agency to figure out now I don't just want to kill Muggleborns. I want to get to Harry specifically mm -hmm. because that's now Voldemort's motivation is to kill Harry. Whereas in the past when he made that Horcrux, um, it wasn't at the time. No, of course not. Cause he was only 16 or 17 right. when he made it, but it's interesting, you know, it, it represents how Voldemort's character in many ways is a static one, you know, yeah. at, at 16 years old, he would have perceived Harry as enough of a threat to want to kill him um, simply because he knows Harry's past, his future is that Harry killed Voldemort um, and that, and that he's like, okay, well, like I have to figure out how that happened so that I can keep that from happening again to me in the future. And then I have to kill you. Um, and that's a consistent thing with Voldemort is like, he needs to eliminate Harry as a threat. 
-hmm. So it's interesting that his 16-year-old self makes the same choices about that that adult Voldemort does, right? Well, it speaks to Voldemort as somebody... I mean, Voldemort, I think it literally means flight from death, as you guys have probably discussed. And it speaks to how Voldemort, however unwittingly, has kind of ruined himself as a human being because he's so frightened of dying that he can't even really change much or grow as a person. The only thing he really has is a... like The only thing he has as a person is that he's frightened of death and he can control other people. And that means he can't have relationships, he can't love people. And I think it's interesting, as you say, that he's static because it's almost like his chief obsessions have permanently kept him in this static this stasis mm -hmm. um and you can see that here as well that he he's very much the same person like even at 16 which is kind of horrifying yeah. to think about nobody <laughs> wants to be their 16 year old selves right <laughs> right i mean he has changed in some ways right but sure but his ultimate the like <laughs> underlying self is the same he, he still has this like evil conviction underneath right. everything mm-hmm yeah, if anything, he just got worse and worse, which is, like, not a good thing. You <laughs> no. don't want to be worse than your teenager self. But that's part of what Dumbledore eventually explains to Harry, is that, like, yeah. as Voldemort aged and started creating more and more horcruxes and splitting his soul further, he became less and less human. Yeah. Um, because, like, the less soul you have in this universe, I guess, the less, like, a person you are. Yeah. Which yeah. sort of makes sense. Mm -hmm. And what, what other thing is interesting to me, um, we, we talk, you know... We talk a lot about Horcruxes because um, we know how the story ends and they're pretty central to the story. Yeah. This was one of the first ones. It would have had to be. Um, yeah. We don't know whether this one was first or whether Marvolo Gaunt's ring was first. Um, mm -hmm. It's one of the two. Um, but we know that when you split your soul, you essentially tear it in half. So a lot of readers are like, wow, that's interesting. It's sort of like tearing a newspaper in half multiple times, right? Mm -hmm. So the first one the thing that you split off is half of a soul. Mm -hmm. The second time, it's a quarter of a soul. Third time, it's an eighth of a soul, and so on and mm -hmm. so on. Mm -hmm. And so at the end, Voldemort isn't left with, like, uh, half a soul at the end. He's left with, like, one 128th of a soul or something like that. You know, right. it's like an absurdly small fraction <laughs> because he's divided it so many times. Well, and I also wonder, um, we are going to talk a little bit later on about like what the physical manifestation of Riddle is in this scene. Um, but I wonder if because this was either the first or one of the first ones, um, if it has, if it's stronger in a way and if it has more power to become personified. Yeah, I was I was going to wonder at the same thing. Like, is, is it the larger fraction of the soul make it more powerful or more human? And yeah, it does seem yeah. so. Keep going, man. No, that's okay. I was going to say, bringing that back to, like, memory in that way is that, like, you know, maybe we can connect this to, like, our childhood memories or younger, earlier memories um, can often be, for people, like, the most vivid or the most, um, the most either painful or good or intense emotionally when you think about them. So maybe they're a little bit more clear in this way. And I wonder if that is happening with this Warcrux. Mm-hmm. I can see that. I mean, the teenage, like, memory riddle seems to have real agency, that he can change his mind, he can flip around, he doesn't necessarily want to do what the actual riddle did, which is kind of interesting to me. That, And that really builds on some of his, like, some of the horror feeling of the character, that he's a monster who has genuine authority and agency, and... 
I like that about the character, that he actually isn't exactly Voldemort, but he is Voldemort. There, He's in this really strange in-between space. You know, it's kind of a purgatory, yeah. really, for the, him. Mm-hmm. Um, he has no being beyond what Voldemort wanted, and yet he does have some kind of uh, some kind of identity. Yeah, no, he, he does. It's really interesting. Um, and the other thing that is about the diary itself that I wanted to hit on before we sure. move on is um, it clearly, like as we already said, it was intended to be used as a weapon. So even whenever Voldemort created this Horcrux, he wasn't just intending for it to be a safe place for him to hide a portion of his soul and a rather large portion of his soul. He actually right. wanted it to be used. He wanted to put it at risk. He wanted to open the Chamber of Secrets again. Um, and he wanted it to have this agency, this ability to create a plan, to create a strategy of how to execute that whole plan. Um, and so that implies that, you know, if you give something agency, you're basically opening it up to to be killed or destroyed in some way. Um, so he was very cavalier with this weapon that he created, this Horcrux, Um and most wizards, if they created a Horcrux, would not. So what Dumbledore eventually understands because of this um, connection that he has is that uh, Voldemort has not just created one Horcrux, but has actually created several. Mm-hmm. Um, because he doesn't care about this one being destroyed. Or at least he wouldn't care, you know, because he intended for it to be used and not just hidden. Mm. Well, I wonder too, I uh, wonder when Rowling came up with the concept of Horcruxes. Do you guys know? I don't know. I, I think it was very early on. Um, okay. I think gotcha. it was because she. I know she had that. a big. Uh, I know she had the major outline. Um, mm-hmm. pretty much when she started, but it, it it no, it is interesting, and I think, um, with the diary, as well being used as this weapon, and we're talking about like memory and when he created it. Um, I think that it also shows how early, especially early on, Voldemort's motivations were very tied towards Hogwarts because Hogwarts was, you know, is the most important place to him in a lot of ways. And um, so he wants to protect the things that he likes about Hogwarts and he feels are sacred about Hogwarts and himself, like Slytherin and, you know, violence, I guess. Um, And then (laughs) he wants to destroy the things that he hates about it. So I think that that's still kind of consistent, but it just expands to like the whole world later on. Um, but if this was his first Horcrux, it's very focused on, I want my world of this school to be, mm-hmm. you know, my ideal. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And as we're going to learn, like all of his Horcruxes have to do with Hogwarts in different ways. Yeah. Um, even the ones that don't seem like it, like, like Nagini and like Harry, um, they do have connections to Hogwarts in various ways. Nagini represents the snake of Slytherin. Um, and, and Harry also loves Hogwarts just like Riddle did. Um, so the diary in a lot of ways is like a connection to Hogwarts as well, because it's, it's a connection to like his ultimate triumph over the school in a way His like making it a true home for himself. Cause I think he feels like, you know, part of his legacy needs to be, um, realizing Salazar Slytherin's goal for a like wizards only Hogwarts society basically. Mm-hmm. And so his furtherance of that goal is like really paramount to him and that's what the diary represented yeah and we've also we also want to discuss as well that um you know he is really similar to harry but you know they're also very different and i think what's interesting is that question of determinism versus uh free will that you know does harry 
is Harry that similar to Voldemort? Does he have different choices? Does he have a different, does he have different characteristics? You know, can he just go down a different path? Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. I, yeah. I, that's one of the things I really liked about the books actually, as I remember as a kid that like there were similarities between them and it wasn't, they were not so different. You and I thing. It was that <laughs> there was stuff here that both of them could see in each other. And it created this like weird, Mutual hatred and respect, I think. Yeah, um, yeah, definitely. I think Riddle goes into this scene, like, wondering, mm-hmm. is this a mm-hmm. boy who is just like me? Is he, like, a boy genius with tons of ambition and drive and, like, sociopathic tendencies? Because, look, Harry's gotten this far, mm-hmm. yeah. you know? Or is he just an ordinary kid who got lucky? And Riddle comes away from the meeting thinking that it's the latter, but yeah. ultimately is defeated by Harry. Yeah, so I wonder yeah. if that gives him pause in his final moments. Is he like, oh, this kid is really like me? Well, I, it's, I also almost think of it as like, if Riddle were a real person, you know, obviously this wouldn't work. But just saying that he, they were at school together, sort of like when Draco says to Harry, like, in the first book, like, you know, join my side, basically, like, hang out with the cool pureblood kids mm-hmm. um, and be evil and, you know, be in Slytherin and that's like kind of what we will talk about more is like the choice of kind of being Southern or Gryffindor and good and evil and that kind of complex balance between the two, because Harry is a mixture of those things. And um, it's even Riddle in this moment is kind of trying to gauge, like, could he come to my side? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah. Or like, is he an equal? Right. Basically. Yeah, no, I mean, they're they're similar in a lot of ways. I think part of it, obviously, is the legacy of the Horcrux, right? Part of Voldemort's soul is in Harry. So, of course, they're going to have certain similarities, like Parseltongue. Um, But it's not just that. Like, Harry does have other similarities to Voldemort, too. Both half-bloods, you know, both, like, orphaned, Mm -hmm. essentially. um, And, like, both, like, grew up without real families. Um, But the way that they diverged was that Harry's like kindness and willingness to like believe in other people um won out and riddle basically became a sociopath yeah it's funny you know looking at these books um i i think one of the things that i would critique about them might be that harry is sometimes he just feels like a sort of wayward traveler he doesn't always feel like a hero or real agency where he just gets put in the middle of things um like, I, I remember the fourth book, sometimes I was like, what, why is he in the tournament again? Like, he just gets <laughs> put in the middle of it. Um, and, like, the, the show, the books do get some really good conflict from him being like, I didn't ask for this stuff to happen to me, it just did. Mm-hmm. But um, one of the things I do like here is that when Harry is put in these situations, these challenges, he always rises to them. Like, he's not just giving up or, you know... Uh, letting go or you know trying to be powerless he actually does consistently do the right thing and i think that's the key difference for him and voldemort that voldemort always makes the easiest choice and the worst choice he makes the choice that you know will just give him power or make him able to manipulate people whereas harry makes the choice that's always harder but it actually you know gets the job done it makes other people happy Mm -hmm. right yeah i think this also this scene is pretty pivotal in Harry's life in terms of like guiding him in a direction Mm -hmm. Um, because he essentially saves the day all on his own with, with help from Fox, the Phoenix, but like ultimately it was his own actions that led to Riddle's destruction. 
and yeah. saving Ginny. And I think that um, this coupled with his experiences in the first book um, and like a little bit, I think there's another turning point in Goblet of Fire. Um, but essentially like from Order of the Phoenix and beyond, Harry has this insane hero complex. Um, and it's like he always needs to be the one to shoulder the burden, to carry the day, to be a martyr. Yeah. And I think it starts kind of in the chamber here, like with this interaction, because he thinks he's about to die. And he's like, that's fine, because I saved Ginny and like Riddle's gone. Well, but he's, it started even in the first book. Like we had talked about this, you know, he even like last chapter when he was entering the chamber and he's separated from Ron, it's like parallels the first book when he gets separated from first Ron and Hermione yeah. going into yeah. the alone and he's just like well gotta do it um i i'm risking my death and he right he doesn't have that much agency at the beginning but then it becomes this interesting but then sometimes annoying thing where he's like no guys Hmm. you know um here here i go i gotta do (laughs) it and they're all like you're you're stupid um and so sometimes i feel frustrated later on in the series when like it's it continues to be the truth that harry can and kind of needs to do things on his own and he keeps yeah. lucking himself out of them too yeah like he does in this <laughs> in this book and and like every other book too he, he gets lucky it's not just like courage and skill a lot of it's luck yeah sometimes i'm just like let hermione do that she's super exactly. smart yeah well as we have been talking, <laughs> been talking about this about whole uh, whole entire book is like hermione's basically written out of this book and she's written yeah. out of like all the important scenes um, because it, it would have been too easy for her to figure everything out. Because she would have figured everything out already. <laughs> right. And she we does. Just, That's why I remember. She does. Exactly. Like, we yeah. gotta petrify Hermione and, like, we gotta make Hermione be a cat in the beginning because otherwise she's just gonna, like, the book will be over. Yeah, the book's over right. before it starts. And and that's, you know, we, we've talked about that as maybe a, a weaker um, characteristic of Rowling's writing in the book is like, uh-oh, if this character is about to ruin my story, just get him out of there. <laughs> Um, she gets better yeah. about that as the book's going. So moving more into the writing of um, Rowling's writing in this chapter and her characterization of Riddle. Um, so he reveals that, as we said, his name is Lord Voldemort. That's the name he gave himself, which means fly from death. Um, and I noted earlier that that seems like an emo middle school kid thing to do <laughs> sometimes. Like in this chapter, just on this reread, it was kind of like, seems silly to me to be like, I changed my name to I am Lord Voldemort. Like, I was right. like, okay. Right. Um, so it is kind of like a, you know, immature, like funny thing. But um, what I was wondering as well is for Rowling, you know, because we know Voldemort means fly from death, did the name... Voldemort come first? Did Tom Riddle come first? You know, did she take one from the other? Yeah. Um, and, like, how, you know, did she know both of them from the beginning? I don't know. What do you guys think? So, I have a theory about this, which is that she came up with Lord Voldemort, and she came up with Tom Riddle. And she was like, how do I get this to anagram to that? And that's how she came up with Marvolo. But because Marvolo isn't a real name, it's like yeah. completely uh, made up. Uh, but I think I think that she really liked Tom Riddle because Riddle as a name is like a perfect villain name. Yeah. It's like there's so much like inherent like mystery surrounding that. It's not like mm-hmm. obviously evil, but it is like obviously strange. And so you're like compelled by this name and by this like character associated with it. And then Tom, this is like a plot point. Tom is like a super common name and Tom Riddle always hated that his name was so common. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, but instead of just like going by his middle name with Marvolo or whatever, 
he's just like, I'm going to make a new name that's really emo. Right. Yep. And, and, that, and the Lord Voldemort, I think, is like what she wrote first, the fly from death thing. Yeah, probably, yeah. Because that's his character. Um, and she is very, like, Dickensian in that way. Like, she names people after their most common character trait. Like, Remus Lupin is a classic example. Yeah, exactly. Uh, the Voldemort thing is interesting, too, because it's a very classical thing. It's a very old-school kind of rock and roll thing to do. Like, you take a new name uh, or you change your identity in order to create something new. Uh, pops up a lot in Shakespeare. Uh, appears a lot just in, like, the history of pop music, where... You know, you have people creating these new names because the previous one was too plain, too working class. I mean, you look at Cary Grant. Cary Grant's real name is Archie Leach, which is mm-hmm. a terrible name. <laughs> yes. <laughs> like, objectively awful. And I think it's smart that she immediately puts that in, that, like, you know, Riddle was this inadequate, ambitious, angry kid who hated his father, clearly, you know, hated his mother, and needed some kind of new identity to to brand himself to make a new to create a new name a new world a new identity uh which is pretty common with people who come from bad backgrounds and they just want to do something else they want to start over and this is kind of the perfect way to do it yeah that that is that is a good point um that it's something it's something that's it very it's common to do so it's not just uh middle school emo kids but uh, <laughs> I like to think of that as uh, as Voldemort. That the Vol- the Voldemort name is super emo. Don't get me wrong. Like, yeah. it's, I'm like that's silly. <laughs> do you think that he actually sat down one day and was like, "I'm going to anagram my name," or do you think that he like had a magical anagram maker device or something like that? <laughs> mm. Yeah, I don't know. He's that smart. Or do you think he came up with Voldemort and then like backtracked? I mean, it's, it's also this is just like a kind of technical thing. But if we're thinking about like the writing, you know. It's obviously a French, Voldemort, but, mm-hmm. you know, nobody says that. Um, but, yeah, no one in the story comes up with that. And they all, so it's kind of interesting to, I mean. Now that I think about it, is, like, France even really acknowledged as, like, a country in the Harry Potter mythos? Is that Goblet of Fire, though, right? Don't they have some French characters? Yeah, yeah they, they have, do. Because uh, the Beaubaton is from France. That's yeah. right, yeah. That's kind of funny. No one's like, well, Voldemort's French. What's that mm-hmm. about? Yeah, like, and they don't even really, like, talk about, yeah, like, oh, hey, like, this is what his name means. Like, no one from Bobaton is ever like, that guy's name is French. And it's <laughs> like, <laughs> he's French. Voldemort. <laughs> yeah. It's funny. Yeah, so, you know, I, I came on the podcast as a huge fan of horror fiction, and I really wanted to talk about this one chapter in particular because this is one of the most, like, purely horrific. Uh, scenes from the Harry Potter universe and along with like the graveyard scene in Goblet of Fire which is also Mm -hmm. just genuinely terrifying in the opening yes Um, we'll have you back on for that one too (laughs) (laughs) yeah please uh Tom Riddle's preserving the diary so I want to talk a little about the concept of the uncanny um which means so Freud sort of termed it he in his one of his essays and basically it's the strangeness in the ordinary and or uh, the con also uses the field where we do not know how to distinguish bad from good pleasure from displeasure. It's a weird anxiety. And so David Lynch uses the uncanny a lot in his work. A lot of horror writers do in general, anything with like dolls or Mm -hmm. any kind of objects that are uh, ordinary objects that are given terror. Like that's really in the realm of the uncanny. 
So I think Tom that Riddle here, me, like more than any other horror element in totally. In the film. Oh, they're, yeah, they're terrifying. Like you jump know, scares totally. don't bother me, but like uh, like a creepy doll that like turns its head <laughs> to look at you, I will lose <laughs> it. <laughs> oh yeah, no, it's it's awful. And so Tom Riddle is preserved in the diary. He's an uncanny creation, bad. And Rowling really does a great job of building that up. That something is wrong here, and that feeling grows and grows both for Harry and for the reader. And she adds to that with the visual description of him at first. He's blurred around the edges. He's a memory. He's not a person. And he's almost, he has like the literal, the conception that I really like here is like almost of a photograph. That Mm -hmm. he's not a human being. He's a preservation. And as as he says, you know, a memory preserved in the pages of a book. Right. I really like how the film does this where they make him like sepia toned. Yeah, I thought that was a really nice touch. I watched that recently. I thought that was yeah. great. Yeah, um, it was really cool because then they're like they're basically calling out to you, like, "Hey, this is like really old thing <laughs> yes. that like we've brought back." Yeah, I remember some of the sound design around that too being really smart. That there's this sort of like ambient tone in the background yeah, the whole time, yeah, right. which builds up the eeriness. And so I want to talk a little bit that, and also, uh, you know, it builds up to this statement when to Harry when he takes picks up Harry's wand, he just says, you won't be needing it. It's uh, just a great, creepy little moment um, Mm -hmm. of sort of, uh, like, foreboding. And Yeah, you can feel the dread in Harry's, like, in Harry's narration of the event when he's, like, when he hears that, he's just like, what is happening? Right. And he sort of has this slow realization, like, something is very wrong here. Mm -hmm, Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And someone mentioned similar to Event Horizon, which is a really good call. And, uh, I like, like the, like, uh, this is a a callback to a very weird sci-fi horror movie. And when one character says, well, we're going, we won't need eyes to see, which is (laughs) absolutely, absolutely terrifying. Excuse my language. And yeah. Yeah. So, uh, she keeps building up the description and what's really smart is she starts using language that we already associate with Voldemort. So it's hungry. Uh, his eyes are described as cold like his look is cold he is an odd red gleam and what's great is we do associate this with Voldemort but it's also with monsters with horror figures so vampires zombies um other Mm. demons so this is the past specifically as vampiric this is the past feeding off of the present like Tom is Tom is feeding off Ginny's life force exactly like a vampire he is truly undead. He's not alive, nor is he not alive, uh, which is used terrifyingly in Twin Peaks: The Return when Laura Palmer <laughs> says to uh, uh, to Agent Cooper, "I am not dead. I am dead. Yet I am not alive. Yet I am alive," which <laughs> is one of the most terrifying descriptions I've ever heard of monstrosity. <laughs> um, like I remember watching that and going, "Ah!" <laughs> <laughs> um, that, by the way, that whole show is terrifying. If you just want to scream a lot, you'll watch that. Um, <laughs> so you know, as we said, the uncanny is a phrase for things that are familiar but they feel wrong, and that's where the diary and riddle really exist. They're objects and persons that appear normal, but they're in fact incredibly frightening. And uh, we can get a little bit into Ginny as sort of a horror figure, but. That's basically how I feel with Riddle, that this is a horror creature. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, so not not a human, but really just like no, a monster. No, it, it's very much, you know, a vampire. This is someone feeding off of other people and targeting 
you know, this is a monster. Uh, it's a horror monster, which I think Parasitic, is great about. Parasitic, really, because he can't Parasitic. exist without, yes. without Ginny. And yeah, that's, exactly. yeah, that's very similar to, I mean, that's what Voldemort is the whole mm-hmm. time that we know him. And the Sorcerer's Stone, too. Yeah, I mean, he yeah. is literally a parasite there. Um, you know, he yeah. becomes this thing. He has to, because he split so much, he has to feed off of other people. Um, literally was drinking the unicorn blood in the last one, so... Mm-hmm. Um, it is very... That's a good call. He is very vampiric in these first two books, especially. And then even in Goblet of Fire, when he, like, rises out of that cauldron and, like, has a corporeal form again, it's it's still, like, vampiric, too. Because he needs, he needs oh my God, parts yeah. of Harry. To... He's a ghoul. I mean, he becomes a ghoul, basically. <laughs> right. Uh, yeah. Wow. Yeah, he, he, but he rises from the grave. Uh, yeah, there's a lot of vampiric stuff. I mean, you know, Voldemort's like a weird vampiric Hitler, basically. Yeah. <laughs> Good description. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I also wanted to mention, too, just the the phrase that made me, it made me laugh, it makes me laugh like every time because I think it's a good line, is uh, Tom Riddle's phrase, well, Dumbledore did keep an annoyingly close watch on me. Uh, <laughs> and it's great that he says it very calmly in the description, but it's, it's so petulant. It's a very mm-hmm. funny line to me. Uh, but yeah, those yeah. are my... Those are my thoughts on that sort of like the horror element of this. That's great. Yeah, yeah no, that's really great. And we can kind of move into um, Riddle and Ginny because as sure. you mentioned, um, Ginny is also a horror figure in a lot of ways. Yes. Um, so I'll just mention in my social work way that <laughs> Riddle yeah. is grooming Ginny in this situation. Totally. Um, and I didn't really think about that until this re- read through um, mm-hmm. because he is... He was like, okay, you know, he's possessing her. But even if we forget about the magic part of this, you know, he is um, someone she can open up to. He's an older teenage boy, even though he's not real, um, who pays attention to her, gives her advice. Um, she can write to him. And right. he is, you know, getting her to trust him in that way. Yeah. Um, and by opening herself up emotionally to him. He, he gains power, not even like uh, psychological power, but a literal magical power over her. And that's how he can possess her, too. Right. And so I was wondering, like, sort of thinking about that and the fact that, like, when she's being possessed and doing all these unspeakable things, she has no memory of it after the fact, mm-hmm. going back to our theme of memory. Um, I wondered whether that was like a metaphor for how trauma can affect memories of people under similar situations. Like when you experience a trauma, you can often like not remember it. Because your brain just isn't forming memories because it's so traumatized. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I was wondering if, if Rowling is trying to say something about trauma in that way. Yeah. It's an incredibly abusive relationship. And I think what's, you know, done well here is how he takes advantage of her trust. And then, you know, and, and much like a lot of abusers, gets the, that person to do things that otherwise they never normally would. Right. And right. I think it's really well done. And he also, you know, isolates her um, by this, you know, by everything that he's doing um, because because she is scared about what's happening and what she's doing. And she also has these memory blocks. And then she's sucked in spending so much time with the diary. Um, she is not connecting t- to anyone else. Um, mm-hmm. And she tries, as we see um, in the last chapter, she tried to say something to Harry and Ron, saying something's wrong. She's trying to confess, but... Um, she also feels a lot of shame around that, you know, as yeah. obviously many of these people do. So they feel like they can't say anything to anyone because they're going to be blamed. And in this case, since she literally is 
um, doing these evil things through him, um, she is understandably terrified. Yeah, and there's another um, comparison here, too, towards domestic violence victims or, or abuse victims, is that um, she tries to get out. She tries yeah. to escape the situation by removing the diary from the equation. She sort of figures out that the diary is messing with her, and yeah. she leaves. But um, when she sees Harry with it, she's like, oh, no, Harry's going to find out about all this. And she, like, goes back. She goes back to the diary. Yeah. She steals it from Harry, knowing that it's torturing her, knowing that it has this power over her um, because she is too afraid of the consequences if Harry finds out what she's been doing, essentially. Yeah. And so Riddle not only has power over her emotionally, but now he can manipulate her through this sort of weird blackmail where he's like, what have you been doing? You know, yeah. like, are people going to find out what you've been doing yeah. unless, like, you put your faith back in me? Um, yeah. So even though she knows it's wrong, she sort of feels like she has to go back to it now. Right. And it's it's notable, too, that, you know, Ginny's possession and her waking up with these, like, remnants of her actions, like the, the rooster feathers, for example, uh, it really echoes some horror stories, such as the short story Strawberry Spring by Stephen King and the movie Lost Highway, which is directed by David Lynch. And both of these stories and many other horror stories, they deal with the idea that you don't know what you've done, only that you've committed some some kind of crime and that the dread of it is horrible that it's the worst possible nightmare. Um, Mm -hmm. And, you know, in, in riddle really possesses Ginny much like a demon would. And, you know, she still feels that guilt for these actions. She had no real control over, but you know, that guilt is going to linger. And I think there's a lot here in terms of like, of of a demon, like, like a lot of ways chamber of secrets is a horror story. And it's a story about, sort of the possession of the past like the past controlling you and taking over and then you have to wipe it away from you 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 have to look at the present instead of going to the past people do that in different ways right lockhart tries to wipe the past away with memory charms which is sort of like an artificial wipe right Right. because you're not really erasing the past you're not moving on you're just sort of destroying people's recollection of it um, which which means that history is bound to repeat itself, right? But oh, totally. but Harry's way of dealing with the past is to confront it directly, um, and then to destroy it essentially. Yeah, mm-hmm. I mean, a lot of the Harry Potter themes, you know, in general, especially Prisoner of Azkaban, are about sort of mm-hmm. these the, the the remnants of the past coming back and echoing over and over. And then the ending of the the, the books are really about the, that sort of wiping away of the wiping the slate clean and. Right. starting over fresh uh, i think it's really smart yeah and of course you know we we know that most of the events of the seventh book in, in a lot of ways like echo the events of the first book it's very yeah. cyclical you yeah. know things begin and end at hogwarts um even like the forbidden forest as a place where sort of like dark stuff happens um so yeah so in many ways it's like history repeating itself as a theme in, in the harry potter universe Oh, absolutely. Of course, that has a lot to do with memory and the past and all that stuff. Mm -hmm. So moving on a little bit from Riddle, um, the other notable things in this chapter are kind of Dumbledore and the objects that he indirectly sends Harry and how that relates to choice um, in this chapter and in the book. Um, So Dumbledore says, as we mentioned in a couple chapters ago, when he is being taken away or he leaves, um, he says, 
I will never truly left Hogwarts as long as there are people loyal to me or something like that that are here. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and so I was wondering, you know, how much do we think that he kind of planned or knew in advance? I mean, this seems like a really, like, as we talked about, lucky situation that Fox was there and the sorting hat and dropped the sword and just in time. And also, <laughs> like, Fox's tears happened to be Basilisk cures, whatever. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of like, uh, how much does Dumbledore know? Not necessarily about what's going to come you know in the future but i guess about like what is in the chamber and um if harry were to encounter the monster this is what it would be like um so i'm not sure it seems like if one thing went wrong he would be pretty screwed well yeah so i mean i think i don't want to accuse rowling of using a deus ex machina here because um i think it's i think it's pretty well established that these things were established earlier in the books, like uh, Fox's ability to heal wounds um, and to, uh, you know, bear immensely heavy loads. Um, And then, you know, Dumbledore basically gives Harry that clue when he says, like, you know, if you're loyal to me, um, I will sort of be there in a way. Um, So it's very satisfying as a reader when, you know, when we see this happening, because it makes sense. It's like, oh, like this is Dumbledore sending his defender um, some tools that he'll need. Um, yeah. And yeah, I think it, I think it kind of makes sense. But it definitely does feel like um, Dumbledore, again, leaves a lot up to chance. So, you know, yeah, Dumbledore is not the best planner. I mean, <laughs> that's kind of... Not. Yeah, Dumbledore's a very frustrating character if you're like looking back at the plot and stuff. You're like, why did you do that? No, yeah. no, no, why? <laughs> Um, definitely had our fair share of criticism of him i mean it's oh, just yeah. another evidence like yeah another piece of the uh evidence against him of sort of like why are you placing so much on this child and not yeah. revealing important things that he needs to know which like harry talks about later on directly to him but right um <laughs> we just on the reread see how early this starts with him yeah I mean, should Dumbledore be in charge of Hogwarts? Open for debate, to be honest. <laughs> Questionable, yeah. <laughs> Maybe the Ministry of Magic should be in charge. I mean, hey. <laughs> Don't put Umbridge well, we in there. Just one. get somebody else. Uh, but yeah, so so on to this um, Sorting Hat thing. I think this is actually one of the main themes of the book. Because Harry right. keeps obsessing about this over and over. He was like, I had this pivotal moment in my first year yeah. where I sat under the Sorting Hat and it told me, that I would do well in Slytherin. And I told it not to put me there. And he's like, did I screw with fate? Like, did I mess with my own destiny by doing that? When when mm-hmm. Riddle to him says, like, you're very similar to me. Like, you, you know, maybe Harry thinks like, oh yeah, like, this is why I belong in Slytherin. This is why the hat was telling me that all along. Yeah. Um, and even this book, Harry asks it again. He's like, are you sure that I would have done well in mm-hmm. Slytherin? And the hat's like, yeah, dude, you would have <laughs> done well in Slytherin. I stand by it. Yeah. Yeah. But here, this pivotal moment where Harry is like the epitome of Gryffindor House, chivalry, bravery, heroism. Uh, he reaches into the sorting hat, wishing for anything to just help him defeat this monster, and pulls out Godric Gryffindor's sword. To me, that's an incredibly powerful moment, and it's the culmination of really the whole his whole internal struggle about like who he is and his identity. Mm-hmm. Um, next chapter, Dumbledore says only a true Gryffindor could have pulled that out of the hat, Harry, which is emblematic of like what the message is, right? 
But um, more than that, to me, it's really cool because we learn from the Sorting Hat that the Sorting Hat is Godric Gryffindor's actual hat. Mm. That he like took off his head and said, this is how we're going to sort people. I'm going to give this hat a brain and then it'll tell, like, it'll read the minds of the people that sit under it and it'll tell them where they belong. And so it it come, it harkens back to that moment when Harry chose to be in Gryffindor instead of Slytherin. Right. And the hat is saying, like, I stand by what I said you would have done well in Slytherin. But you are a Gryffindor because you wanted to be there and because this is how you're acting now. Mm-hmm. You know, it's our it's our actions, it's our choices that matter. Not really what the hat sees in your head as much as like what you do with that. It's not who I am, but what I do that defines me. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> it's that Batman Begins thing. Or is that the Dark Knight? Yeah, totally. Uh, Batman um, Begins, yeah. It's... Yeah, um, and I think that just thinking about all the past and all this kind of history of Hogwarts, um, we are in this moment, you know, in the chamber that Salazar Slytherin created. There's a statue of him right there. His monster's right there. And what Harry gets is Godric Gryffindor's stuff to help him. So it's kind of like in this way, almost like through Harry and Riddle and Ginny and everyone down there, these two are fighting. It's like a so, clash of titans. It's like the avatars of Gryffindor and Slytherin fighting each other. Yeah. Yeah, yeah exactly. In a battle for supremacy. Like, whose way is better? Yeah. That's mm-hmm. oh, really cool. <laughs> I didn't think about that before. That's great. Yeah, that's a good call. Yeah, I mean, in a lot of ways, Harry Potter is, you know, the traditional hero's journey. And I think a lot of that kind of Cambellian arc is about action and choice. And, you know, what what do you decide to do? Who are you really? I mean, are you chosen to do these things or do you just rise to the occasion? And I think with Harry Potter, the, you know, the, the books kind of, you know, they, they move in between that where Harry Potter is this character in the prophecy, obviously, but you know, you could say Neville Longbottom's also the actual um, guy who basically saves the day or, and I, I, which I like about it, actually, I think it's smart that the books don't, you know, like like all books, like all stories featuring prophecy, the books aren't going to um, be concrete about them, and it'll uh, never the happen things... exactly the way you think it will. Right? Yeah, That's exactly. Don't even story. don't even bother screwing around with that stuff because it's just you know <laughs> stuff's going to happen the way it's going to happen. And I like here too that Harry decides to do things. He he chooses to stab the diary. He chooses to save Jenny over and over. You know. As much as like I, I feel like sometimes, uh, watching the rewatching the movies, you know, I really actually haven't re- reread the books, which I really should. And uh, rewatching the movies, it is funny where I'm like, oh, come on, Harry, just you know, do it. Or like, uh, <laughs> why are you so confused? It's pretty simple. Just do it. Yeah. Um, yeah. But you know, over and over, what I think makes Harry such a likable character is that sense of choice. That he always does the right thing. He's a consistent character. Yeah. And that comes up much later when um, Dumbledore is finally explaining everything to him in, in mm-hmm. Order of the Phoenix. Yeah. And Harry is like, why do I have to have this burden on me? Like, why Why does it have to be me? Like, why is this prophecy about me? All this stuff. And Dumbledore is like, it didn't have to be about you, mm-hmm. but you're going to do this anyway because that's who you are. You're going to choose to enact it. Right. You're going to choose to kill Voldemort because he killed your parents, because he's killed your friends, because yeah. he keeps coming after you. He's forcing you to do it. So you're gonna, because that's what you're gonna do. But it's not like you have to. Mm-hmm. But like who you are is telling me that you're gonna choose to do this. You're gonna choose to bear this burden. Yeah. Right. So it's a choice, but it's also not like his whole 
his whole life is like we said like it's not really a choice like he he it's a combination of like you know nature and nurture i don't know like the way that he has yeah the way that he was born and the situation the circumstances but then who he is as a person um made it so that those things would combine but yeah, yeah. and not to get too like bleak you know because i think a lot of a lot of what connor's saying is right like he does have agency. Yes, he does. He ultimately gets to choose what to do. It's just that we know Harry, and Dumbledore knows Harry, and, and mm-hmm. we all know what he's going to do because of who he is. Yeah. It's powerful stuff, honestly. Uh, you know, looking back at it, it is funny looking at these books and being like, yeah, you know, you can pick them apart, but ultimately the storytelling here is pretty rock solid. Well, Connor, thanks so much for coming on this episode of the show. We're, we're so glad to have you, and your expertise in horror fiction is really appreciated. Happy to be here. Real quick, uh, do you want to give a shout-out to your own podcast and tell the audience about that? Absolutely. Uh, so I have a podcast called The Barn, a podcast about The Shield. It is a podcast where me and my co-host, Mason McGuire, uh, we go over the classic FX cop series, The Shield, uh, not for the faint of heart, but it's a fantastic television series. It's basically a classical Greek tragedy in seven seasons, but it's filled with violence, wild, wild craziness, uh, really great characters, and uh, some of the best plotting you'll ever see in any television series. So highly recommend it. And you can check it out at SoundCloud, iTunes, wherever podcasts are found. Awesome. Thanks, Connor. Thanks. Thank you all for listening to Harry Podcast and the Air of Slytherin. We hope you've enjoyed our discussion of this chapter. If you have thoughts or questions about anything we've discussed today, especially the horror elements in this chapter, please email us at contact at theharrypodcast.com. You can find out more about the show and listen to any of our episodes at www.theharrypodcast.com or on Apple Podcasts. Stay tuned for next time when we dive into Chapter 18, Dobby's Reward. I'm Madeline. And I'm David, and we'll see you next time on the Harry Podcast. Knox.